you turn to Romans 8, you probably knew that already. Uh, maybe we'll get done with this chapter this morning. Romans chapter 8. You know, we've been in Romans uh, for several weeks, and today is uh, no exception. Uh, just a little history of where we've come from Romans chapter 1. Romans 8 is probably the uh, favorite chapter of the entire book. I did find a new favorite chapter in my Sunday school class this morning. Ezekiel chapter 47. We read this morning that there will be fishermen in heaven. Hallelujah. Okay. My second chapter favorite now is Romans chapter 8. But uh, I enjoyed uh, this chapter because it takes us very high and it takes us very low. You know, a lot of people uh, like to live in Romans chapter 8, but they don't like to um, experience all that it teaches us. To live in Romans chapter 8, you first have to experience Romans chapter 6 and 7, where it talks about our death. It talks about us surrendering. It talks about us yielding ourselves to the Lord. It talks about our sin. It talks about our Savior. It talks about a lot of things that you and I go through uh, in living or heading towards the Christian life. And then we get to chapter 8 and we get to learn a lot about what God has done for us. And today is no exception to that. We will learn what God has done. There's beauty and there's glory in chapter 8. There's also struggle and there is heartbreak. And so, as I said, we have to experience the heartbreak in death before we can experience the glory in life. Have you ever heard this phrase before? Calvary came before Pentecost. All right? The death came before life was given. Uh, Jesus spoke about that as well uh, in his sermon in John chapter 12, verse 24. Follow with me as I read that. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So death has to come before life. Now, I don't mean your physical death. You know that. I mean your spiritual death, your spiritual execution on that cross. You learned that that old man in you was crucified 2,000 years ago with Jesus Christ on that cross. When you became a believer, that became real to you. And you experienced that life transformation of that old man leaving and the new man coming in. The new life that comes with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus talked about that. Last week we talked about, on Sunday night, we talked about becoming or moving on from being a child of God to a son of God. There's an advancement, there's a graduation that we all go through from being children feeding on milk to being grown-ups feeding on meat. And that's what God wants for you to experience and to do. The Christian life is a life of power within us, but it's lived in a body of weakness. My body is decaying. My body's getting older. But the man, new man inside of me is being renewed day by day. Amen. The old man's perishing, but the new man is being renewed. So we live a life of power in a body of weakness. You as I as Christians live a life of hope in a body of futility, of emptiness, of nothingness. We have this hope. It's all because Christ is in us. The Christian life is not designed just for the weekend. It's not designed for you to put it on when you get up on Sunday morning and come to church in. That's not what the Christian life is about. It's not about church on Sunday. 
The Christian life is designed by God for us to live it day by day, moment by moment. Whether I'm at home, whether I'm at work, whether I'm at the shop, whether I'm at the lake or the restaurant or the theater, the Christian life is designed to live continuously. And in that Christian life, I expect God to work, don't you? Don't you expect God to do some things in your life as a Christian? And in likeness, God expects you to surrender to Him and the Holy Spirit, the new man that has moved into you, the new man that has taken over your life. This life that we live is for anywhere and everywhere. As a Christian, I'm not to pick and choose where I live my Christian life. My Christian life is the new me. It's the new you. It's the person that you have become. It's Jesus Christ living in you. The Christian life is designed to meet your every need for every moment of your new life in Jesus Christ. The source of this strength and this power is for us and available to us to meet us when life becomes difficult. And we all know about difficulty in life. That is where Paul picks up our text, in the difficulties of life. Let's stand together. Let's read Romans 8, verse 26. The Bible says, And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. All right? The difficulties of life. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Let's stop there and pray. Father, bless your word in our heart and mind today. Lord, teach us about ourselves and teach us even more about you. And put us in a proper place, Lord, and give us perspective from heaven. And let us live in that. And trust you in all things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. You know, you may not know how to pray, the Bible says right there in verse 26. In our weakness, we may not know how to pray. But I want you to understand something. You may not know how to pray, but you know that you should. Amen? You know that you should be praying. The man who wrote this was not always a believing man in the Lord. Right? We read the story of Paul's testimony. He is a church Christian killer. He's a persecutor. He wants to take, go out and take Christians and put them in jail. He wants to put them in prison. He wants to put them to death. And on his way, with authoritative papers in his hand, he's going to Damascus to catch some more Christians. And on the way there, on the road to Damascus, the Lord stops him dead in his tracks and meets him on that road. And so Paul is blinded, right? The Bible tells us he's led by his hand on into Damascus and he's going to stay at a man's house until someone comes to help him. And so the Lord speaks to a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And he says, I want you to go see Paul. 
Well, let's just read it for ourselves. Acts chapter 9, verse 11. And the Lord said to him, Ananias, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. You may not know how to pray, but you know you should be praying. Why is that important? Because praying is the mark of a Christian. Lost men don't pray. They might throw up a help me Lord sometime or another. That's not praying. Christians pray. Lost men don't pray. Paul's a lost man, but yet something's happened to him. He met Jesus. And now Jesus says to Ananias, go to him. Ananias, I can imagine, said, well, he says it in verse 13. He says, well, wait a minute, God. That, that's the guy that kills people like me. That's the guy that will throw me in jail or he'll take my life. And the Lord responds by saying, look, Ananias, he's one of us now. See, he's praying. He's praying. Do you understand how important it is for a Christian to be praying? That's our lifeline. That's our life breath, so to speak. Without prayer, I am showing that I'm not a Christian. I'm showing that I really don't have a relationship with God when I don't pray, when I don't stay in contact with Him, when I don't be, remain connected to Him. It's important that we pray. Paul says right here, you may not know how to pray, but in your weakness, the Holy Spirit will take over for you. Why? Because, remember, He's filling your vessel. The Holy Spirit has moved into your life. You don't know what to say. You don't know how to say it. You get taken over by the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of times we don't pray and we don't have. You think, well, why, why bother? Why do this? Why do that? James tells us in chapter 4 of his letter, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have... Because you do not ask. You see, we are to be a praying people. Amen? We are to be a praying people. All the time. In the morning. In the afternoon. In the evening. When I lay my head down. When I raise up from my bed. I should be praying. Talking. You don't have to get in a proper praying position. But you can talk to God anywhere at any time. The reason we are in spiritual poverty in the church in America today is because we're not a praying church anymore. We are not a praying people. We need to be about, uh, busy about the Lord's work. Now, sometimes we don't know how to pray. Why? Because there's conflicting prayer. There's two possible solutions. I, I've got one solution I think God would want, and I've got another solution that I think God might want. Which one do I pray for? They're conflicting to me. And so we don't pray at all. We just wait for God to move. We wait for Him to act. Paul says at this moment the Spirit takes over. And how does the Spirit pray? It says in verse 26, He Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now some churches want to tell you that's when the Spirit takes over and you start speaking in tongues. Okay, But that's not here. That's not this. You see, it's too deep for words. Tongues are words, so it can't be that. 
What does he mean by utterances too deep or groanings too deep for words? Well, when you have a desire or you have a burden within your heart so deep that you don't even know how to express it, that's what he's talking about. That's when the Spirit of God takes over. When that burden of prayer in your life is so overwhelming, you become speechless. The Holy Spirit will take over for you, and He will utter things to God. He will speak things. Why? Because He and God are the same. Amen? The one who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because he's interceding for us. That's what Paul explains to us. So prayer is a vital a mark, a distinctive mark of a Christian. God wants you to learn how to pray. And when you can, he'll take over. This burden, what's this burden for? It's for, it's for a more closeness. It's for deeper a commitment. It's for more grace. It's for things that are beyond my reach physically and even spiritually. I want more of God. I need more of God right now. Jesus said something similar to that in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. Amen. God will fill that burden in you. God will fulfill that longing that is deep down inside of you. You know... These things that God works together to do uh, are not just some things. I'm, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. This, this prayer life, this time where we have this heartfelt desire to pray, richer fellowship with God is what we're after. We need evidence of a deeper walk with the Lord in our life. And the Spirit wants to push us on towards that goal. When you have that burden and you don't know what to say in prayer, God will take over and He will push you on closer to Him. Look what it says in Philippians 3. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Paul was always moving towards a goal. A closeness with Christ, closer walk with God, more fellowship, deeper commitment, a greater awareness. If you look back over the history of the church and you look at where it's moving, where has it always been going? It's going towards Him. Amen? It's working its way towards God. That's you and I, people. We are the church. And, and our heart's desire is to be with Him, to be closer to Him. And to be walking with Him. And one day when this old body quits and wears out and drops, the real me, the real spirit, the real soul of Clay Hicks will be in the presence of God. Because it's been my heart's desire, my life with the new man in me, to know Him, to walk with Him, to be with Him. He's my Savior. Amen? Do you see that church? The church has always been moving that way. It's always been going in that direction. As we know that we should pray, but we don't know how to pray, the Spirit takes over, and at that time, God is doing something in us. God is working in every one of us. Let's read on, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. That Bible says right there, you know that verse. 
In fact, I bet most of you in this room could quote that verse. We know that God works all things together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. Not just some things does God work out. God says here, I work all things out for good in your life. Now, we overlook the good things in our life because typically we think it's something we've done or deserve and we just kind of take it for granted, the good things, the blessed days, the happy moments. It's always the bad days that we look at this verse for, is it not? We always look at the hard times, the difficulties, the trials, and we say, oh yeah, Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for good. Now, in a moment of a hard day trial, do you really believe that verse? No, probably not. Do you really believe that God's working this out for your good when you're having a terrible, horrific day in your life? But He is. God is not working some things out for good. God is working all things, the good and the bad. You may not realize it, as I said from your pastor on your bulletin, you may not realize it at the moment it's for your good, but it is for your ultimate good that God is working these things together. And so he wants you to see that. God works to supply your needs, not just your wants. Amen. He works to supply what you need. I read a phrase the other day and it said this, God gave me nothing I asked for and everything I wanted. Think about that a minute. God gave me nothing I asked for, but everything I wanted. You see, we don't know how to pray sometimes. But the Spirit knows how to pray, and He intercedes for us. And God works things out for our good, for the good of those who love Him. These things are not random. They are not just things that are happen chance. These are not things that just might pop up here and there. There's a plan in all of this. There is a purpose in all of this. The ladies read the Scripture this morning. If you noticed in both of those, the word purpose. We are to live towards a purpose. There's a reason you're here. There's a reason and purpose for your individual, specific life. It's not just a random place that we just are born and work and die and quit existing. There is purpose in all of us and for all of us. And God wants to show that purpose to you right now. Look in verse 29. And we know. I'm sorry, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. That is God's purpose for you. That you would become like Jesus. That's all he's working towards in your life. He's pushing you, you're pressing on, you're, you're shaving off sin, you're adding on righteousness, you're doing all of this work. Why? So that you can be conformed to the image of God's Son. God wants many sons in His kingdom. That includes you too, ladies. God wants many sons, many daughters in His kingdom. And He wants them all to look like Jesus. Not in appearance, okay? Not in appearance. You remember the joke about the kid that had shoulder-length hair and he went to his dad and he said, Dad, can I borrow the car tonight? And the dad said, no. He said, well, why not? He said, I'm not letting you drive that car till you get your hair cut. And the kid said, Jesus had long hair. And the dad said, and he walked everywhere he went. 
okay? Understand, God doesn't want you to look like Jesus. He doesn't want you guys to grow your hair out and start wearing robes and sandals on your feet. He wants you to be like Jesus. He wants you to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the purpose. That's the idea that God is after. That's what the potter's wheel on the screen is showing you. God is shaping you into what he wants you to be. And what is that? The image of Jesus. He wants all his sons and daughters to be like Jesus. So that his kingdom is full of that. He wants a host of people in his kingdom. He's not after you to make you a prayer warrior. He's not after you to make you a great layman leader in your church. He's not after you to become a pastor or a missionary somewhere. That's not the purpose of God. That's in the process of the purpose of God that you become a prayer warrior, that you become a great lay leader in your church, that you become a pastor or a missionary. That's all in the process of the purpose. The purpose is that you be like his son. Man, that gets deep for us, doesn't it? Because we all fall so far short of that. But that's God's purpose for us. And that's something we need to press on towards. And in my prayer life, I need to be praying that way. God, make me like Jesus. That's his reason. That's what he wants to do. That's his goal for us. You know, have you noticed nature's pattern that God uses in creation? He might use the same elements in every oak tree. But I'll guarantee you this, there is not two oak trees identical in this world. God uses the same pattern and elements to make mankind. A nose, a mouth, eyes, ears. But you know what? There's not one of us that looks alike. They're all different. So God uses the same elements, but a variety of results. And in the same way in his kingdom, he uses people who he calls to himself, all who are in Christ, but there is an infinite service to God in many different ways, in many different styles, in many different approaches. God wants to make you like Jesus, not looking like him, but acting like him and becoming like him. All in Christ, expressions of service are infinite. Now this brings us to a, a little bit of confusion. How so? Well, it's like this. You and I can't see the big picture. Have you ever been to a weaver's, someone who's weaving and, and making materials, and, and you get on one side and all you see of a tapestry is the threads hanging down on the back side of this big mass of material and it's not until you walk around and look at the other side that you are able to see the beautiful picture that this weaver is making and so that's the way you and I see the world today we see all the thread hanging off the back side it just looks like a mass of nothingness various colors no shape no form Nothing to look at, nothing to enjoy really, until we walk around and we see what God's doing on the other side. And he's using you to make that beautiful picture in the end. 
conform to the image of his son. Be a praying man. That's the mark of a son. You're a praying man. You're a praying woman. That's the mark of a Christian. And in that mark, you may not know how to pray, but God will take over for you because he's designing this beautiful picture for the end when his kingdom is fulfilled and it is revealed as we read in Romans chapter 8. Even creation groans for the revealing of the sons of God. Amen. What a great day that's going to be for the world and for us. So God says, this is what I've done for you. This is what I'm doing for you. What should our result be? What should our expression be? Look in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? What is he saying there? He's saying this. I'm just going to rearrange the words a little bit. If God is for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. It doesn't matter if God is for you. Nobody can be against you to change anything, to do anything, to take away anything. If God is for you, who can be against you? No one. The question you have to ask yourself, is God for me? Am I walking in the Spirit? Am I walking in faith? Do I believe what happened on that cross 2,000 years ago? was for me to take my sin debt. Do I believe that enough that it's changed my life? That's what it is to believe. It's not to believe that it happened. It's to believe why it happened. It was for you. And when you accept that, then you become a new person and it changes your life. You don't stay the same and walk with Christ. You don't stay the same old sinful man or woman and walk with Jesus Christ towards heaven. It doesn't happen that way. You are changed. You are transformed. That old man is removed and the new man comes in and you look different and you are different and you will be different. That's what the Lord is teaching us this morning. Our response, if God is for us, who can be against us? What's the proof? Let's look in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. What more proof could you ask than that? Let me ask you men in the room today. Would you give your son to die for somebody else? Would you give up your son to die in the place of someone else so they could live? I would venture to say no. None of us would do that. I would not give my son for some sinful man to live and my son to die. What is proof do I need? If God is for me, what proof is there? He gave his son to die for me. What more proof do I need that God loves me, that God cares for me, that he cares for you, that he wants you to be with him, that he's done everything he can do in this world to lay out grace and salvation before you but you won't pick it up man you keep running away from him you keep dodging it you keep pushing it aside one day you're going to run out of time one day you won't have that opportunity anymore it'll be too late god offers it today take it today 
Today is the day of salvation, God says. If God is for me, who can be against me? He laid down His Son's life for me. I was an enemy of Jesus. I was on the other side. I was opposed to God in my life. But while I was an enemy, Jesus Christ died in my place. He died for me. All of a sudden, I became a friend of God through my faith in Jesus and what He did. And now I'm an enemy now I'm a friend. Don't you think God will complete the process? Don't you think He will finish in you what He started? If you were an enemy and then you became a friend because of the death of His Son, don't you think He's going to finish the job with you? Of course He will. If God is for me, who can be against me? No one can be against me. It goes on into verse 33 and it says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Verse 34, Who is the one who condemns? Who's going to condemn you? Who can condemn you? The devil can condemn you, right? But it doesn't matter what he says because God is for me. So who can condemn me? Well, maybe Jesus could condemn me. Wait a minute. Jesus is the one who died for you. Why would he condemn you if he died for you? See what it says in 34? Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. If God is for us, there's nothing that can be against us that matters. Amen. That matters. That changes the outcome, nothing. Amen, Preston is right. And so, we see that God cannot bring a charge against us. He died for us. Jesus won't condemn us. He died for us. So he goes on to say, then who will separate me? Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And he looks at the perils of life. Will the perils of life separate me from God? He lists some of them there. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Would my own death even separate me from the love that Jesus has for me? Would your death separate you from God for an eternity? Of course not. Nothing in this world can separate us from God and what He's done for His children who become His sons and who become His daughters. He goes on to list some more things in verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow, hallelujah. If God is for you, who can be against you? That's what Paul is telling us. That's the purpose in God. He wants to conform you into the image of that Son. He comes to a conclusion, kind of in the middle of his two results. But look in verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Your Bible may say, 
through all these things we are more than conquerors. What does that mean to be more than a conqueror? Well, let's look at it like this. If you, by the skin of your teeth, make it to heaven. By the skin of your teeth, you make it to heaven. That means you're a conqueror, right? You conquered. You made it. You got in. By the skin of your teeth, you made it into heaven. You are a conqueror. What is more than a conqueror? A person who is more than a conqueror takes all of those things that were designed to destroy him, and he makes a stepping stone out of each one of them as he plods his way to heaven. He is more than a conqueror, okay? He's overwhelmingly conquered. He's taken all the things that got in the way of his way to heaven, and he made a stepping stone out of it. Not a stumbling stone, a stepping stone. Amen? Do you all remember the movie, uh, The Bridge Over the River Kwai? Anybody remember that movie? That's a great movie, wasn't it? About those soldiers who built that bridge uh, in uh, Thailand, actually, for the Japanese army and the River Kwai. And it, uh, Alex Guinness was the star of the movie. It's a great movie. Well, there was a man who was part of that platoon of men that built that bridge, and his name was Ernest Gordon. And that's a picture of him right there on the screen. And he wrote a book after that experience. He survived that experience in real life. Okay, he became the uh, dean of the chapel at the Princeton University. He wrote this book, and in this book he tells about the starvation, the men dropping from weakness. He said they were walking skeletons. He said the Japanese soldiers were uh, relentless in the labor of us building that bridge, and they provided us the bare necessities of life. And he said that men would get sick and, and, and lose the circulation in their legs and they would lay down and they were too weak to get up. And so these soldiers would pick them up and they would take them to a hut that was built out in the middle of the encampment and it was called the dead house. And they would take these soldiers out there and let them die in that hut. And Mr. Gordon said, I, I was one of those men that got carried out to that hut. And he said, you know, there was no hope in that camp. There was cholera. There was filth. There was everything that was despicable to a human being. And we were living in the middle of that. Plus, we were forced, labored tremendously to build that bridge day after day after day. And he said, you know, there were a couple of men in our camp that weren't, evangelical Christians, they weren't preaching the gospel to everybody, but these two men had a deep faith in God. And he said when that camp saw its darkest days, he said those men formed a group of men that would go around and start massaging the legs of those soldiers who were too weak to walk before they got carried out to the dead house. And he said, then they were allowed to come out to the dead house. And he said, they started massaging my legs. And he said, you know, they did a little act of love and a little act of caring and a little act of hope. And he said, something happened in that camp. And people started cooperating and people started 
participating. And he said, a little bit of joy began to rise up in us men. And we begin to have hope. And he said, that went on for a couple of months. And he said, eventually people started getting well. People started being healed. He said, we still worked. We still labored. We still had deplorable conditions and disease and cholera. But he said, there was something changing in the camp on that river Kauai. And he said, we formed a little church group, a Bible study group. And he said, there were men accepting Christ every day, left and right. Men were accepting the Lord Jesus. And he said, we couldn't wait. And finally, the end of that war happened. And these men were allowed to go home, back to civilization. He said, I couldn't wait to get back home into a civilized world. And he said, you know what I realized when I got home? That civilization is an illusion. He said, back here in America, it was hardly any better than it was in that camp. He said, it was something that I realized within myself that in the deepest, darkest dreads of my life, I realized that in Christ, there was hope and faith and love. And those men in that camp that cared for one another and worked with each other and lifted each other up and massaged legs and fed one another and nursed one another and took care, they were exhibiting faith, hope. And love. You know, you might be in a dark place in your life right now. And you don't know where to go or what to do. You don't know which direction to turn. But I want to tell you something. The realities of life are not death and fear and doubt. The realities of life in the Christian world are faith, hope, and love. These three remain. And the greatest of these is love. Amen. Amen? Think about it. God is for you. He's for you. He's not against you. He's for you. Who could be against you? He loves you. He sent His Son to die for you. Don't push that aside. Don't reject that again. Accept it today. Step into the kingdom of God experience life as it was meant to be lived not in fear and doubt and death but in hope and life and peace and love let's pray Cole why don't you go back and get ready would you all right let's pray father we ask you to bless this moment thank you for this chapter father and what you've done in it for us and teaching us today how much you've done for us and Father, encourage us and let us be praying people. Let us not become slack in that. Let that be the mark of our lives that we might be known like the Apostle James who had camel knees because he spent so much time on them. Let us be like Jesus who would go off by himself and pray. Let us do that, Father. Let us know you more. Let us experience you, Lord. I see our world crumbling around us. But there's always life after death. And I pray today that you help us see that in Jesus' name. Amen.